Now, friends, today we come to Second Chronicles. If you have your Bible, you'll want to turn there. Now, we saw last time that David had assembled all the material, got all the manpower, gave encouragement to the leaders of the nation Israel and to the people, organized the service of the temple after it was built, provided all the money, and told Solomon to get busy. Now, in Second Chronicles, Solomon is going to get busy. And in Second Chronicles, it's quite interesting to note the overall outline. And this is where these notes and outlines are helpful. You remember back in First Chronicles, it's actually all about David. The first nine chapters was the genealogy. Well, why give them? You wonder, nine chapters and just name so-and-so begat so-and-so, and there was a lot of begetting back there from Adam right on down. But it leads to David. And why David? Well, because he leads to Christ, and the New Testament opens the book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David. That's important. And that's the reason it's given. We're talking about David. We had one chapter about the reign of Saul. And the rest of the book, chapters 11 through 29, is all about the reign of David. Now, in Chronicles, we're getting God's viewpoint, not man's. In the two books of Samuel and the two books of Kings, we get man's viewpoint. It's not that it's not inspired. It is just as much. But God is giving you the human viewpoint. Now, he's giving you the divine viewpoint. And where was the emphasis? On David. And where did David put the emphasis? On building a temple to God. Now, when we come to Second Chronicles, two things will become very important. Number one will be the building of the temple. Solomon will build the temple. And in the first nine chapters, you have the reign of Solomon. And beginning with chapter 2 through chapter 7, you have here of the nine chapters, you have six of these chapters about the building of the temple. Of course, God put an emphasis on the building of the temple. And that is the greatest accomplishment that Solomon made. The greatest thing Solomon did was that. Now, a great many people always think of Solomon in terms of all the wives that he had. And that, my friend, is something that's quite spectacular. No question about that. But God didn't put the emphasis there. He wasn't in the will of God. God didn't give instructions for that. That was contrary to the will of God, and that brought about the division of the kingdom. Don't tell me he got by with it. He didn't get by with it. Sin brings judgment. I don't care who commits the sin. It'll bring judgment, my friend. And the only way in the world that you can ever get to heaven is to have a Savior. You're a sinner, and you're not on the way to heaven until you have a Savior, and that Savior is Christ. And so we have Solomon building the temple. That's important. God thought it was important, and he gave all that attention to it. Then the second great theme, we'll see the division of the kingdom, and that's not the important thing, however. But we see that when the kingdom is divided, that the kings, as we've seen before in the book of Kings, they're not very attractive. We've made the statement that, In Israel, 
wasn't a good king, and there's no emphasis on Israel. The emphasis here is upon the southern kingdom, David's line. That's a bad lot, too. There are not many good ones. But you have five of them that are outstanding. Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joash, Hezekiah, and Josiah. These five kings were the means of bringing revival back to the nation. And we're going to have a great deal to say about revival in this section. I intend to spend a little time on that because we're seeing a spiritual movement today. And very candidly, there's more nonsense about revival than anything else. I quit meeting with a group of ministers many years ago. They were praying for revival. And you know why? The attitude was that if we prayed hard enough, God would send revival. And I was just reading this past week one of the leading lights in the evangelical movement today. He's putting down what you've got to do to bring revival. And if you do it, you'll have revival. Well... And I say to you, I guess I'm rather cynical and skeptical. I don't think that'll bring revival. You know why? To begin with, it's not God's method, and then there's something else. Did you know that God is sovereign, friend? And you're not going to make God do anything? And God has a program, and he's not about to change his program for you and me. And that the important thing today is for you and me to get in step with God. I tell you, there comes down through the centuries and out of eternity and move into eternity the will of God. God pity the little man that gets in front of that steamroller. He'll go right over you, brother. <laughs> Somebody said, I don't like it. I don't care whether you like it or not. May I say, you're a creature. I'm a creature. And the important thing is not for me to get God to do something. The most important thing is for God to get me to do something. And that's the big problem. Somebody says, but doesn't God want to send? Sure he does. And if you meet his condition, yeah, right. But may I say, I don't think they're meeting his condition. I think the whole attitude today, we're going to get to that because I think it's important. I think it's interesting that the spiritual movement that's come about in our day to day did not come about by these perspicuous theologians putting down conditions and the churches following them. Because the spiritual movement's not even in the church today. Most of the churches are dead as dodo birds. And the movement today is not among these brainy theologians. I get so tired and weary of reading their material today. Oh, they speak ex-cathedra. They've got all the answers, and the only thing is they have answers but no action. There's no spiritual movement. Out of some of our seminaries today is coming all of this material. These professors speak with great authority. They've got a lot of authority, but they haven't any action. And I don't think they have much authority. May I say to you today, my friend, we need to learn to bow to the will of God and to come in very close to him. Cast ourselves upon him. And we're going to see that there's certain men, even kings, God used them in a marvelous way because they were willing 
to take orders and not give orders. Now, that brings us to Second Chronicles. I almost got off there, by the way, but I do get wrought up over this because I do believe that the biggest hindrance to revival are actually the church leadership. They're the ones that are holding it back, have been for years. Somebody says, well, McGee, you sound like a revolutionary. My friend, I've been a revolutionary ever since I entered the ministry. Only thing is, nobody ever listened to me, and that's the reason. was because I have said from the very beginning that we don't bring it about by these theologians. It doesn't come that way, and that we don't need to listen to them. We need to listen to the Word of God, and that's the reason we're trying to give out the Word of God. Now, I've got some ideas myself. And the only thing is, I'm retired now, and I found out all these years, these brilliant ideas and these programs that are indeed brilliant that I worked out. You know something? God never did use them. I don't think he can use them now. And I'm beginning to suspect that this doesn't come about that way. It's not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. Saith the Lord. It's not by brain nor by brawn, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Hard to learn that, by the way. Now, we come to Solomon here, and I'm reading verse 1. And Solomon, the son of David, was strengthened in his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him, and magnified him exceedingly. Now, you see how gracious God is. Actually, and I hope I made the point, Solomon was not David's choice. He was God's choice. I do not think that David wanted Solomon as king. Actually, his choice was that boy that rebelled against him, Absalom. He loved Absalom. It broke David's heart when Absalom was slain, crushed him. Remember, when he sent out his army against Absalom, he said to each one of the captains when they went by, he says, remember my boy Absalom. Don't let a hair of his head be hurt. David was willing to sacrifice everything for that boy. He loved him. And that boy had a lot of David spirit, too, by the way. And I think he was very much like David. But he wasn't God's choice. Now, God's chosen Solomon to follow David. And the interesting thing is, God's going to bless Solomon. He doesn't choose man. God chooses really weak things of this world. And God's going to use Solomon. David is gone. And the awful thing is that David was a great man. And I say that's an awful thing. Because it looks like it was by his greatness. But Solomon has been overrated. He's not much. But God's going to use him. He's going to use him to build a temple. And Solomon, the son of David, was strengthened in his kingdom. Now, the kingdom will come to its zenith under Solomon. David had put down the foundation. And the Lord his God was with him and magnified him exceedingly. How gracious God is. This man will disobey God and he'll come to the place where God has to repudiate him and tell him that he'll divide the kingdom. Absolutely brought about the rebellion that split that kingdom. Solomon was responsible for it. But the reason he didn't do it during Solomon's reign, he said, is for David's sake, not for yours, but for David's sake. 
Now, verse 2, Then Solomon spoke unto all Israel, to the captains of thousands and of hundreds, to the judges, to every governor, and all Israel, the chief of the fathers. You see, Solomon now has a meeting of the leadership of Israel. So Solomon and all the congregation with him went to the high place that was in Gibeon, for there was the tabernacle of the congregation of God, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness. Now, the tabernacle was up there. We must remember the ark had been brought by David, and it was in Jerusalem and in a tent. But you see their approach, and this is tremendous. You see, they couldn't come directly and immediately to God. The way to God was through that tabernacle, and there was a brazen altar there. And that brazen altar speaks of the cross of Christ. They had to go there. You and I will have to go there. This idea today that anybody under any circumstances can rush into the presence of God and that God's just got his ear out listening. God is not. I think the Lord's made it very clear that he doesn't always hear. The very interesting thing is God says he doesn't always hear the prayer. And he said that. Oh, my friends, you remember, and Peter's the one who wrote that. His ear was open. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. God never said he'd hear the prayer. The only prayer I think that any sinner can pray is to go to God and accept the mercy of God in Christ. God's prepared to meet you at the cross. You've got to go up to Gibeon, where the tabernacle is, and that's where Solomon goes. He's being smart to begin with here. Now, we are told, But the ark of God had David brought up from Kirjith-Jerim to the place which David had prepared for it. He'd pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem. Moreover, the brazen altar that Bezalel, the son of Uriah, the son of Herd, made, he put before the tabernacle of the Lord. And Solomon and the congregation sought unto it. That's the way you go to God, through that brazen altar. You don't go through the ark. You don't come immediately to God. You see, the way of the cross leads home. There's no other way. The way of the cross leads home. Now, we're told, verse 6, Solomon went up thither to the brazen altar before the Lord, which was at the tabernacle of the congregation. He offered a thousand burnt offerings upon it. They're certainly not prodigal in their sacrifices. And you'll notice all the way through the abundance that was in existence in Solomon's day. Now, verse 7, In that night did God appear unto Solomon and said unto him, Ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon said unto God, Thou hast showed great mercy unto David my father, hast made me to reign in his stead. Now, O Lord God, let thy promise unto David my father be established. For thou hast made me king over a people like the dust of the earth, in multitude. Now, God's made good a promise, not only to David, but a promise he made to Abraham. Your offspring will be like the dust. Can't number them. God has said, they've reached the place now, I don't want you to take the census. It was the sin of David. Verse 10, Give me now wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people, for who can judge this, thy people, that is so great? Now, there are those that say, oh, my Solomon was so smart to think of asking for wisdom. 
And God gave him credit for that. Well, where did he get the idea? Now, again, let's go back to First Chronicle 22, 12. And here, David is speaking to Solomon. Back in verse 7 of First Chronicles 22, we read, And David said to Solomon, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house in the name of the Lord my God. Then he goes on to explain he was a bloody man. God would not permit him. Now he says, verse 11, Now, my son, the Lord be with thee and prosper thou, and build the house of the Lord thy God as he hath said. Now, will you notice what he goes on to say here? And that's pretty important. Verse 12, Only the Lord give thee wisdom and understanding and give thee charge concerning Israel. Now, at least Solomon was listening to his father. You can give him credit for that. He was listening to David. David says to him, Oh, may God give you wisdom. Now, when God says, What do you want, Solomon? Solomon says, I need wisdom. My dad David (laughs) knew I needed wisdom, and I want wisdom. God gives him credit for it, though. God said to Solomon, Because this was in thine heart, and thou hast not asked riches, wealth, and honor, nor the life of thine enemies... Neither yet hast asked long life, but hast asked wisdom and knowledge for thyself, that thou mayest judge my people over whom I have made thee king. Now God says, I'm going to give you that wisdom. And now that was wisdom. Actually, it was not spiritual discernment. It was wisdom to rule as king. And he had that wisdom. Let me move down to verse 15. And the king made silver and gold at Jerusalem, as plenteous as stone. And cedar trees made he as the sycamore trees that are in the vale for abundance. The sycamore tree grows over there today. And you don't see many cedar trees. And he tells him he wanted to make cedar trees like sycamore trees. And that silver and gold was like stone. Have you ever been to that land and seen pictures of it? There are more rocks, more stone in that land than any place I've ever been. I tell you, it's amazing. And now gold and silver become just as commonplace as those stones. You see, this man now inherits a kingdom. And it's difficult for us today to really understand all that David had done all that he gathered there for the building of the temple. And they brought out of Egypt, we're told, verse 17, they fetched up and brought forth out of Egypt a chariot for 600 shekels of silver, horse for 150. So brought they out horses for all the kings of the Hittites, for the kings of Syria, by their men. Solomon is getting in an area now where he should not be. He was told not to multiply horses. He does. Now, in chapter 2, we begin now the building of the temple. And we find here Solomon determined to build a house for the name of the Lord and a house for the kingdom. Solomon told out threescore and ten thousand men to bear burdens, fourscore thousand to hew in the mountains, three thousand and six hundred to oversee them. Now, the temple that David had set up, the build. The blueprints all laid out. Now, Solomon begins the organization to build the temple. Now, this is the part of the reign of Solomon that God emphasized. 
Nothing else but this. We read, And Solomon went to Hiram, the king of Tyre, saying, As thou didst deal with David my father, didst send him cedars to build him a house to dwell therein, even so deal with me. Hiram loved David. David loved Hiram. And on that basis, Solomon appeals to him. Now, Solomon had problems with Hiram. Or, let me turn it around, I think Hiram had problems with Solomon. He had been very generous with David. But he finds that Solomon is difficult to deal with. Verse 4, Behold, I build a house to the name of the Lord my God, to dedicate it to him, to burn before him sweet incense, and for the continual showbread, for the burnt offering morning and evening on the Sabbaths, on the new moons, on the solemn feasts of the Lord our God. This is an ordinance forever to Israel. And you could just put that down. And there's been criticism of why the sacrifices will be restored in the millennium. Because God ordained it. That is answer enough. But, of course, they will be meaningful. They'll point back, I think, to the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. Now, verse 5, And the house which I build is great, for great is our God above all gods. What is it that makes a thing great? What makes a man great? What makes a nation great? What makes a church great? God, my friend. And that is something else we're losing sight of today. Now I'm reading verse 6. But who is able to build him a house, seeing the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain him? Who am I then that I should build him a house save only to burn sacrifice before him. Now, sacrifice was the approach that they made to God. The only way that you and I can come to God today is through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the important thing to note here, though, is that Solomon had no misgivings as to who God was and whether God would occupy and live in that house. I read an article not long ago about where a theologian has made the statement that what Solomon was attempting to do was build a little house and put God in a box, and that the people had an idea that God could be put in a box and that he could be held there. May I say to you that Solomon had no conception like that at all, neither did the people. They're much farther advanced than I think a great many folk are today, even in our churches. A great many people call the church God's house. Well, God doesn't occupy a house, never did. Now, the temple was a place to make sacrifices. It was a place of approach to God. That was the important thing, and it had to be worthy of him. It was highly ornate, beautiful. And as we said last time, that we have now what we believe is an accurate picture of Herod's temple, which was built similar to that one. However, it was much larger, and it was built of white marble, never really completed. But the model I saw in Jerusalem, I think probably, is quite accurate. Now, it's not very large itself compared to other buildings of that day. For instance, the Temple of Diana in Ephesus and the pyramids. You put the temple that Solomon built down by the side of either one of them, it was very small. 
it'd be a pygmy. It would look like a Mickey Mouse affair. But it made up for it in wealth, the tremendous amount of gold and silver and precious stones that went into it. Now, we need to note that. And David had gathered together all of this wealth, and we're to see something about it later on. Verse 7, "...send me now therefore a man cunning to work in gold and in silver and in brass and in iron and in purple and crimson and blue, and that can skill to grave with the cunning men that are with me in Judah and in Jerusalem." whom David my father did provide. You see, they had to get the skilled workmen from the outside. Israel had turned to agriculture. God intended them to be an agricultural people, and they were in that day. And the interesting thing is, when they go back to that land today, I travel from one end of it to the other, all the way from the Dead Sea to the Mediterranean Sea. And they are given over to agriculture today. And some of the finest farms I've ever seen are in that land. I do not believe there's land anywhere any richer than the valley of Esdraelon, where Megiddo is. It is certainly a rich country. Now, the nation Israel at this time did not have artificers or artisans, and they had to call upon Hiram for that. And... Solomon says, send me also cedar trees, fir trees. These cedar trees were the cedars of Lebanon and algum trees out of Lebanon. For I know that thy servants can skill to cut timber in Lebanon. And behold, my servants shall be with thy servants. In other words, they had to learn from these people. Now he says, verse 9, even to prepare me timber in abundance... For the house which I am about to build shall be wonderful great. It was not large, but great. Behold, I'll give to thy servants, the hewers that cut timber, 20,000 measures of beaten wheat. Now, there was a misunderstanding relative to that amount that Solomon was to pay later on. But Apparently, a great deal of wealth was to go into this. Now, verse 11, Then Hiram the king of Tyre answered in writing, which he sent to Solomon, Because the Lord hath loved his people, he hath made thee king over them. Hiram said, Moreover, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, that made heaven and earth, who hath given to David the king a wise son, endued with prudence and understanding, that might build a house for the Lord and a house for the kingdom. And now I've sent a cunning man endued with understanding of Hiram my father. And then he goes on to describe this one that he's sending. Now we find in verse 17, And Solomon numbered all the strangers that were in the land of Israel, after the numbering wherewith David his father numbered them, and they were found a hundred and fifty thousand, three thousand and six hundred. He set threescore and ten thousand of them to be bearers of burden. These were to be helpers, you see. These were to be the ones that would help the stonemasons and so on. Now in chapter 3, we see the beginning of the building. 
Verse 1, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah. And that, by the way, is where Abraham had offered Isaac. And then down that ridge right outside the city of Jerusalem, on that same ridge is Golgotha, the place of a skull where Jesus was crucified. Now, we're told here's where he built the temple, where the Lord appeared unto David his father in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Now, David had bought this parcel of ground there. It's a temple area today, and there is where he built the temple. This was to be the place. Now, we have here, and I'm not going to go into much more of the details because Very frankly, to my judgment, it's as boring as a blueprint or the list of building supplies that go into any building that is to be put up. But I do want to say that out of this we can cull certain great truths that you will not find mentioned, for instance, in Kings or anywhere else. Now, when we come here to chapter 3, We find now as he begins to build, and I'll just lift out certain things. Now, these are the things wherein Solomon was instructed for the building of the house of God. This is verse 3. The length by cubits after the first measure was threescore cubits, and the breadth twenty cubits. Now, it's twice as large as the tabernacle was, sixty cubits by twenty. And that translated into feet would be approximately 90 feet by 30 feet. Now, that is the temple proper. Now, you must understand around it, there were many buildings that were put up. I have here in the picture of the model, I have the buildings that were put around the temple. And there were quite a few of them that were put around the temple. I have many slides that I took and some I bought of this particular area, and it was quite imposing when you put all the buildings together. But the temple proper was only twice as large as the tabernacle. Now, there's certain things here that we need to call attention to. Some of them we've had before and some we have not. Verse 13, the wings of these cherubims spread themselves forth twenty cubits, and they stood on their feet, and their faces were inward. Now, these were the cherubims that looked down on the mercy seat. Now, you will recall that back in the tabernacle, when Moses was given instructions, that no measurement was given at all. This speaks of deity. You can't measure it. This is something you can't put on a slide ruler. Therefore, What we have here is something I think that's rather impressive, that the chariot beams now must have been much larger than they were in the tabernacle. And, of course, they were. But even with the measurements given, there is a sense and a note of deterioration. And that is, they're attempting now to measure deity. That cannot be done. Now we have our attention called to some things that were not in the instructions given back in Kings. Now, again, I call your attention to this. It's important. We're seeing God's viewpoint. Now, what is it that God called attention to here that in the human account 
we did not have the record given. Well, we have here the beauty of the veil given. Notice verse 14. And he made the veil of blue and purple and crimson and fine linen and wrought cherubims thereon. Now, the veil was a thing of beauty. It was said that by the time of our Lord that it was about three inches thick. It was changed every year. And that while horses were tied to one of them that had been taken down on one occasion, and they could not tear it. They could not rip it at all. It was actually a thing of beauty. And the veil speaks of the humanity of Christ. God calls attention to that. This is something he calls attention to. Now, that veil speaks of the humanity of Christ. When Christ was crucified, the veil in the temple was rent in twain. Now, this is long before he came to this earth. This is the Lord saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, notice something else that we have here. I think that we should call attention to, and that's the pillars. Now, here in verse 15, "...and also he made before the house two pillars of thirty and five cubits high, and the chapter that was on the top of each of them was five cubits." Now, this meant that these pillars went up very high. And that is something that this model is taken into account. And these pillars are very high as to the size of the building. Almost seems out of proportion, by the way. Now, these pillars speak of strength and beauty. And God calls attention to that. Those are two things that man thinks that he attains, strength and beauty. We are a great nation, and yet we can't maintain law and order. Artists are supposed to go for things of beauty, have an eye for beauty. Well, have you looked at modern art? Well, my daughter majored in that, and she took me to a display of the works. It was not what you would call, I suppose, a show or anything like that. Well, she just took me through the classroom to show what they were doing. And she'd say, Dad, isn't that beautiful? Well, I tell you, I didn't want to misrepresent how I felt. But I couldn't say it was beautiful. I could say, My, I haven't seen anything like that. And I want to tell you I hadn't. Now, God is interested in strength and beauty. Those are very impressive. Now, if you... Drop over to the next chapter, you'll find out that again he mentions this matter of strength and beauty. Verse 12, to wit, the two pillars and the pommels and the chapters which were on top of the two pillars and the two wreaths to cover the two pommels of the chapters which were on top of the pillars and so on. You have here... Again, a reference to that. God's calling particular attention to it. And then you have here in verse 16, "...he made chains as in the oracle, and put them on the heads of the pillars, and made a hundred pomegranates, and put them on the chains." We have here 
these chains. Now, what does that speak of? Well, it speaks the unity of the nation. It speaks of the unity of the tribes and the unity of the individuals that constitute the tribes, and the tribes in turn constitute the nation. It speaks of that. The thing is that God goes in for the matter of absolute unity. And that is something that a great many of God's people are omitting. We are split and fragmented into thousands of different groups. Every day sees a new organization come into existence. And I'm not sure that all of this is honoring to the Lord. He has even gone farther than that in the New Testament and given another figure, not a chain now, but a body. And he says the church is a body. The very interesting thing is that in the body you have different members, and some are members of honor and dishonor, but they're all in one body. And that is the picture of the church. So here's a great lesson that we have here. And then we have given to us these pomegranates. And if you will notice here, In verse 16, there was a hundred pomegranates. And then we go over to verse 13, and we read in 400 pomegranates on the two wreaths, and so on. Now, the pomegranates speak of fruitfulness, and that's the emphasis that is here. Then we find that the four colors were emphasized. There was the blue, the purple, the crimson, And the white, the fine twine linen, you see. Blue is the color of above, of heaven. Purple is royalty. And crimson speaks of redemption, the blood of Christ. And white speaks of the holy wall. All of these things are emphasized here in God's viewpoint. And I think that he just didn't want us to miss the point in these two chapters that are here, chapters 3 and 4. Now we come in chapter 5 that the ark is brought in, that the temple now is completed, and we won't go into the details of that. We had that back in Kings. And now will you notice, this is chapter 5, verse 1. Thus all the work that Solomon made for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in all the things that David his father had dedicated, And the silver and the gold and all the instruments put he among the treasures of the house of God. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes of the chief of the fathers, the children of Israel, into Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. Now, Zion is just right up on top of the hill from the temple area. And not very far, by the way. I walked it several times, both up and down, and found that it was not too far, and of course, very interesting. Now, I made a statement before that I did not know where David brought the ark. And I still don't know, but it was up in the city of David, which is Mount Zion. And that, of course, is not a very large area, but that's where David brought it. Now, we find that they have met now to bring in the ark, and they sacrifice sheep and oxen, which could not be numbered for multitude. Now, the thought here is that there was no attempt to count them for the very simple reason 
They're speaking of that sacrifice of Christ. My friend, you don't measure it, nor can you measure it at all. This is a tremendous statement here, and very important. God's calling attention to it in a very definite way here. Verse 9, chapter 5, 2 Chronicles. And they drew out the staves of the ark. At the end of the staves were seen from the ark before the oracle, but they were not seen without. And there it is unto this day. That is the time of the writing of this book. The staves were taken out of the tabernacle. It is to move no more. That ark here was constructed down in the wilderness at Mount Sinai. And the children of Israel spent 40 years in that wilderness. That ark went before them across the Jordan River. And that ark now had been brought up by David to Jerusalem. It was up at Mount Zion where his palace was. Now it's brought down to the temple that has been constructed. This thing of beauty, it's like a gem that was there. Now this is the place where God is meeting with his people. But the interesting thing is, this ark had been on the wilderness march all of those years, and it had been moved after they got in the land from place to place. We saw in Samuel how the Philistines even captured it at one time. Now it's put in the temple into a permanent resting place and the staves are withdrawn. Now, that ark, as we've seen before, speaks of the person of Christ, of who he is. On top of it was a mercy seat. How wonderful. Now, it's brought to a permanent place in Jerusalem. From here on, the children of Israel are to come to Jerusalem, the males, three times a year at three of the feasts at Passover, Pentecost and Tabernacles. They were to be there. And this ark, speaking of the person of Christ, the mercy seat, speaking of his work of redemption, shedding his blood where the throne of God is a mercy seat today, that is all permanent. Now, Christ has appeared once in the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That is permanent. That is basic, that is established, that cannot be moved. Let me use the figure of speech here. The staves have already been pulled out, and there'll be no movement anymore. There'll be no other way of salvation. Peter could say to his people, There's none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Friends, the staves have been pulled out. The ark's not on the move. And then... It speaks of rest. The Lord Jesus gives rest to those that come to him. But there's going to be a place of rest. And that place of rest, you recall, he said to his own in the upper room, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. The place is prepared. And one of these days, we're to go to that place. And we're told that 
One of the characteristics of that place is the permanence of it, is the fact that it is a place of eternity. It is the place where no longer will there be any tears, no longer will there be any death. These things have passed away. We find that there is the throne of God, and he said it's done because he's Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, And we are told here that this is heaven. This is the city of God. And the foundations of that city are permanent. They are forever. They are twelve foundations that are there. And the Lord God and the Lamb are the temple of it. Friends, the staves have been pulled out. (laughs) They're already pulled out. How wonderful. We are not going to be on the march. You don't have to go looking for God today. As we saw in Romans, Paul says you don't have to go to heaven to bring him down or down to hell to bring him up. It's right there for you. It's permanent. It is eternal. It'll not be changed. It drew out the staves. Now, verse 10, And there was nothing in the ark save the two tables which Moses put therein at Horeb, when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. And there are two things now that are missing. One is Aaron's rod, and the other is the pot of manna. Both of those were there. The pot of manna, you remember, ordinarily manna would disappear if they didn't gather it. And Aaron's rod, it budded, and all of that, that rod now has disappeared. Why? Well, because I think, friends, that both of these, the manna, which speaks of Christ as the bread of life, that speaks of his humanity and the fact that he feeds those that are his own, and Aaron's rod that bud speaks of his resurrection. Now, that's been actualized to us today by the historical fact that Jesus died. He was human. That's his humanity. He died, was buried, but he rose again the third day, and that's not human. Aaron's rod that budded. Now, will you notice, as we read on, verse 11, it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place, for all the priests that were present were sanctified and did not then wait by course. You see, all of the courses came up for this act of dedication. And we have here that all of the singers and the trumpeters, and all of those were there. And there was the blowing of the trumpets, and the sounding of the cymbals, and the instruments of music. And they praised the Lord, saying, For he's good, his mercy endureth forever. And the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord, we are told. Now we come to chapter 6. And this man Solomon here is actually going to have a great prayer of dedication, but he's also going to deliver a message before his prayer. And it's a tremendous message, by the way. I want you to listen to it. Then said Solomon, The Lord has said that he would dwell in the thick darkness. But I built a house of habitation for thee, and a place for thy dwelling forever. And the king turned his face and blessed the whole congregation of Israel. And all the congregation of Israel stood. 
And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who hath with his hands fulfilled that which he spake with his mouth to my father David, saying, You see that all of this goes back to David. David is the one responsible for the temple. He says, Since the day that I brought forth my people out of the land of Egypt, I chose no city among all the tribes of Israel to build a house in, that my name might be there. Neither chose I any man to be a ruler over my people Israel. But I have chosen Jerusalem, that my name might be there. And I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. Now, this is the sovereign will of God. God has chosen Jerusalem to be the center and the capital of this earth. It will be someday. He chose it for the place for the temple to be built. And he chose David to be the king, and now one in David's line. This is the arbitrary, the absolute will of God in making this choice. Now, I want to be very frank with you today, very candid. I would not choose Jerusalem. Very frankly, I think the most beautiful spot in that land is where old Ahab and Jezebel lived, up at Samaria up on top of that lovely mountain, and it's not hemmed in on any side. A lot of people build up on a hillside, and they have a view of a valley, but they don't look every direction. Now, in Samaria, you could look in every direction. You look to the west, you see the Mediterranean Sea. You look to the east, you see the Jordan Valley and the Sea of Galilee. You look to the south, you see Jerusalem. You look to the north, you see Mount Hermon. Now, my friend... That's quite a view. I would choose that place. But you want to know something. I think I ought to let you in on this. God never asked me about it at all. This is the sovereign will of God. He says here, I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there, and I have chosen David to be over my people Israel. Now, this is something we need to recognize. Now, God has his will for you and me. I actually believe that for a child of God today, that God has a place for you to live, has a house for you to live in. He has all of those things. Now, the great problem is for you and me to get in the will of God. You and I can stand off and argue about free will and the election, the sovereign grace of God, God's sovereignty, all you want to. We won't get anywhere. And it's rather, I think, fruitless to waste your time on that argument. I'll tell you something that is very profitable, is for you and me to get into the place, and I want to put it a little more specific, in the spot, the spot that is marked X of God, for you and me. And when you and I get on that spot, we're going to be in the right place. That is the thing that is important. God chose Jerusalem, and God chose this man, David. Now, will you notice verse 7? Now it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. 
Now, all that Solomon is saying here, I've done what David wanted done. I've merely carried out the wishes and will of David in building this. And now, will you notice here the 11th verse? And in it have I put the ark, speaking of the temple, wherein is the covenant of the Lord that he made with the children of Israel. This is all important to see here. Now you have this wonderful prayer of dedication of Solomon here. And we read, And he stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the congregation of Israel, and spread forth his hands. For Solomon had made a brazen scaffold of five cubits long, five cubits broad, three cubits high, had set it in the midst of the court, and upon it he stood and kneeled down upon his knees before all the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hands toward heaven. There's always been an argument about the proper posture of prayer. Should you kneel or stand up or get down on your face? Uh, Bow down on all fours. How should you get? Well, we're told here, Solomon kneeled down. You're looking for a posture? Well, certainly there's nothing wrong with this. And now notice what he does now, for this is a great prayer of thanksgiving. And he said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee in the heaven nor in the earth which keepeth covenant and showeth mercy unto thy servants that walk before thee with all their hearts. Thou which hast kept with thy servant David my father that which thou hast promised him and speakest with thy mouth and hast fulfilled it with thine hand as it is this day. Now, he's coming to thank God because he is the creator, and he's done something. He's moved into the heart and life of Solomon. He had of David, and he had into the life of the nation. That is something that today a great many folk need is an experience with God. Somehow or another are satisfied to stand off and stiff-arm the Lord and keep him over there and say, yes, I'm a Christian, and this sort of thing. But why not, my friend, come to him directly, come to him definitely, come to him in a real relationship. Now, again, in this prayer of dedication, he comes back in verse 18, but will God in very deed dwell with men on the earth? The whole heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house which I have built. Now, you'll notice that he thanks the Lord here, first of all, for material things. And he had, I think, probably more material things than any man on top side of this earth. But the things that he had, like gold and silver, we're going to see over in the ninth chapter. He had it in such abundance it was commonplace, like going out and picking up pebbles on the seashore. And he never had to look at the price tag on anything, and economy was not in the vocabulary of that man at all. But in spite of all that Solomon had, the average American today has more things and more stuff and more material than Solomon ever had. He has more comforts, more devices, more gadgets, more buttons to push, things that are functional and utilitarian. Solomon never had air conditioning, central heating, electric cooking, electric blankets and toasters, 
Solomon had ice drinks in summertime because he sent a crew to the top of Mount Hermon to get the ice and snow up there. The average American, though, can wander into the kitchen, open the ice box, and have it in a few seconds, all the ice cubes he wants. Solomon had fresh meat all the time, but he couldn't keep it in deep freeze. had a retinue of servants, was slaying animals, and, of course, he had quite a few people at his table. They probably would consume an entire carcass at one time. An army was busy bringing foodstuffs from all over the earth. The Navy was bringing costly and delectable morsels for the taste of the most fastidious gourmet. Now, them average American can go into a supermarket, push a cart down aisles where there are mountains of foodstuffs, and they've been brought from the four corners of the world. And he can get them packaged or canned, get it in cellophane, get it in box. He can get it most anyway. The shelves groaning with goods from everywhere. And when he goes by the cash register, why, even the cash register, though, groans today. There is something, may I say, that this man utters a great prayer, thanksgiving to God for providing so many things. I wonder how many of us thank God for the provision that he makes for us around us today in so many ways. I do not know about you. I thank God for the privilege of living in this day and generation, not just for the material things, but, my friend, because of the spiritual things and the Glorious opportunities today. Solomon had this prayer of dedication and this message he gave, and it got out finally to the then-known world. But he never could go on radio, nor could he go on television at all. Now, will you notice in this prayer, there are several things we'd like to call attention to. Verse 21, Hearken therefore unto the supplications of thy servants, and of thy people Israel, which they've made toward this place. Hear thou from thy dwelling place, even from heaven. Verse 22, if a man sin against his neighbor, and an oath be laid upon him to make him swear, and the oath come before thine altar in this house, then hear thou from heaven. You see, that temple was to become the very center of the life of the nation Israel. Verse 24, And if thy people Israel be put to the worst before the enemy, because they've sinned against thee. If they've come back to the temple, you see. Verse 26, When the heaven is shut up, there's no rain. What are they to do? Come to God in prayer. Verse 28, If there be dearth in the land, if there be pestilence, if there be blasting, what are they to do to come to the temple? Come to God in prayer. Verse 30, Then hear thou from heaven thy dwelling place, and forgive and render unto every man according to all his ways whose heart thou knowest. For thou only knowest the hearts of the children of men. God knows us, friends. That's the reason we ought to be doing business with him. Verse 32, Moreover concerning the stranger, which is not of thy people Israel, but is come from a far country, for thy great name's sake, and thy mighty hand, and thy stretched out arm, if they come and pray in this house, then hear thou from heaven, even from thy dwelling place, and do according to all that the stranger calleth to thee for, that all the people of the earth may know thy name, and fear thee as doth thy people Israel, and may know this house that I have built 
is called by thy name. You see, this was a great missionary project. The world was to come here. This was not just for Israel. But if the stranger come from the end of the earth, come from a far country, then he was to hear. Verse 36, If they sin against thee, for there is no man that sinneth not, thou be angry with them, and deliver them over to their enemies. Why, again, what are they to do? Well, in the country that they have been taken, why, they are to lift their voices to God and turn toward this temple, turn in that direction, though it even be destroyed. And that's what Daniel did, you will recall. And you read now, and I think probably I should put in here, verse 38, "...if they return to thee with all their heart, with all their soul, in the land of their captivity, where they have carried them captives, and pray toward their land, which thou gavest unto their fathers, toward the city which thou hast chosen, and toward the house which I built for thy name, then hear thou from heaven, even from thy dwelling place, their prayer." and their supplication, and maintain their cause, and forgive thy people which have sinned against thee. Now, my God, let I beseech thee, thine eyes be open. Let thine ears be attent unto the prayer that is made in this place. Now, therefore, arise, O Lord God, into thy resting place, thou in the ark of thy strength. Let thy priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation, and let thy saints rejoice in goodness. O Lord God, turn not away the face of thine anointed. Remember the mercies of David thy servant. And I say this is a glorious prayer. And he makes it on the basis of his mercies that he extended to David. Now, you and I are to pray, not on the mercies, but because Christ has made a mercy seat for us to come to today by his shed blood. We have mercy today, and he made peace for us by the blood of his cross. God is prepared to extend mercy to us. Now, this brings us here to the conclusion of the prayer of Solomon. And now we are going to see that the glory of the Lord will fill this house as it had the tabernacle. Now, though it was inferior in many ways, and yet rich and ornate, yet it was inferior to the tabernacle. But God, in his mercy, he accepts it and blesses these people. And over a period of time, he did bless them. And we're going to see now, as we leave this part, we're going to see the final days of the reign of Solomon. And actually... The thing that God's going to emphasize is his tremendous missionary work. Solomon was a great missionary. People came from the ends of the earth when they heard of his wisdom. And that, of course, was spiritual wisdom that God had given him. I don't think he exercised too much sense in other directions. 